You know, sometimes some of the things that we do or some of the habits that we have express something of the identity of who we are, right? The, that we sort of have certain habits or expressions that clue other people into something about who we are ourselves. I'll give you just an example that I, even though I've lived in some different places around the country, I, I was born here in Michigan. So, so I am from the time I was younger, a kind of a Spartans fan, right? So that means in my closet that there's, there's a certain amount of shirts and hats that are green and white. And yeah, every now and then, right, when I go walking out on the nature trails behind my house and I'm wearing the Spartan hat or the Spartan shirt, you, it's identified. Someone passes on the trail and you get it. Go green, right? They, they, yep, they give the response. You know what to do, right? <laughs> you know the response, yeah. Because when you express identity in some of those ways, other people catch that, right? It's not just something about hey, what I'm going to wear today, but other people pick up on that as a part of, in some way, who you are, that you, you're a fan of that school and you root for their teams and that kind of a thing. Then it all got thrown sideways. It, it got thrown sideways because then one of my kids decided to go get a degree from the University of Michigan, right? Now, <laughs> now I have a closet that's at war with itself in some ways. And... I'm not always sure what to do about that and how I can do that. So, so one of my daughters who's, you know, trying to realign those things in my life to where now there's just as much maize and blue that goes along with the green and white. And what am I supposed to do about that? I don't know, right? Well, so in, in the ways of living in both worlds, you know, I, I kind of go like um, I'll wear one green sock and one blue sock will be my expression of that. Because it feels like in some of those ways I'm caught between two worlds, caught between two identities, and, and don't know how to express something that really feels totally at home in just one or the other, but it's sort of stuck between the two. Sometimes, sometimes as people of God, maybe faith feels like that too. A faith that feels like it's stuck between two worlds. Stuck between two identities, and, and I'm not quite sure where it's supposed to land in some of those ways. Maybe sometimes when we live our life of faith out, we find ourselves stuck in some of those places. I'm caught between two worlds, and, and I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to express or live out this faith in ways that, that honor and glorify God when I feel like I'm stuck in, in more than one tribe working this out. Well, we're going to look at an example of someone who lived in that experience, all right? So this is the example of Esther, and I'm going to read. This is uh, coming from chapter 4. Now, uh, the quick little background here for Esther. Esther is, has become the queen of Persia, right? So she is married to Xerxes, who's the emperor, the king of Persia, which came by way of basically a beauty pageant that she was selected to do this. She is of Jewish heritage, ethnicity, so she's one of the Hebrew people. She is an orphan who's been raised by her cousin Mordecai. Mordecai then, who's close to the palace and the place where where the king lives, Mordecai has given advice to Esther to say, all right, so you're going to be the queen of Persia, but 
don't tell anybody that you're one of these Jewish people like us. Keep that ethnicity a secret. Hide that identity. Don't wear that shirt. Don't put on those socks, right? Don't let people know. Keep that part hidden. That's his original advice that he gives. But then things happen that sort of change that around, right? So I'm going to read first from Esther chapter 4, and then we'll explain the background of how this one comes into play, all right? So here's what happens when Mordecai learns about a plan to eliminate all the Jewish people. Esther chapter 4, I'm going to read the first 14 verses. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, this plan to kill all the Jews, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes, a sign of repentance. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay to the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, that's the city where the palace is, to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her, go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Esther, someone caught between two worlds and how her faith plays into that. So, so let's consider what that looks like in her life of faith, and then maybe gives us a clue to how maybe 
we can find how our life of faith finds some instruction from that too, okay? So, so Esther is this person who's born and, and becomes an orphan and is raised by her cousin Mordecai and eventually becomes the queen of Persia. But as she does so, it's Mordecai's advice to her to say, don't let anyone know that you're one of the Jewish people, right? Keep that part hidden. Until this plan unfolds, that's when Mordecai changes his advice on that, that we read about in this passage. So it's, it's Haman who makes this plan. Here's how that works. That in ancient Persia, there's a law, and, and it's not that we have this part in the, that we see it here in Esther, but there are other historical records that have been unearthed that confirm this to be true. That there was a law in ancient Persia that no one was allowed to go to the emperor, to the king, without being summoned or invited, except for there were seven people. Seven people who had a, a title in the Persian Empire, which basically translates as friends of the king. These seven people could go in and, and meet with the king whenever they wanted. They had unrestricted access to the king, but no one else did. Only these seven people. Haman is one of these seven people who can go to the king whenever he wants, right? can come uninvited. He's one of those royal officials who's top of the top in his power in the kingdom. The queen is not one of them. Esther does not have that right. She cannot go to the king whenever she wants, but has to be invited or summoned. And she knows that. So Haman, Haman, who can go to the king whenever he wants, comes up with this plan to annihilate the Jews. Here, here's how that takes place. That, well, there, there was an occurrence where Mordecai would not bow down to Haman. So Mordecai would sit by the king's gate because he was near the, near the palace there. And, and Haman, Haman being a guy who thought pretty highly of himself, would demand that all of the people show him respect like they respect the king. So Haman would demand that people bow down to him just as they bow down to the king. But Mordecai, Mordecai being a faithful Jewish person, knows that I only bow down to the Lord. And he would not bow down to Haman. This made Haman so angry. It bruised his delicate ego to the point where He wasn't just upset at Mordecai, but Haman's Haman's anger turned into a rage that was pointed towards Mordecai's whole family, his whole people. That out of this one event, that that Haman makes this plot then to say, I'm going to eradicate not just Mordecai, but everyone who's like him, all of his ethnicity. And not just here in this city or around the palace, but in the entire empire, in all of Persia. So he comes up with this plan and he gets the king to sign it and the edict goes out that all of the Jewish people will be annihilated. That's where we pick up on the story we read here today. Mordecai hears of that plan. And I imagine to some extent that that Mordecai knows that this is coming from Haman and that it started with their little rift between the two of them, 
that Mordecai knows, I'm just trying to be faithful to the instruction that I have to bow only to God. And now it's turned into something where all of the Jewish people could be wiped out because of it. And that's where he then sends word to Esther. Right? The, sort of a, a new message. I know I've always told you, don't tell anyone you're one of the Jews, but you know what? Now that has to change because now the situation is different. Now you need to go to the king and tell the king to spare our people. So there's this little back and forth that takes place there, right? That Mordecai sends word for this to the king and, and or sends word of this to Esther to go to the king. And Esther responds, hold up. You know what happens if I do that? You do, right? This means that I'm going to be most likely put to death. Now, Esther knows. Esther knows something of how she got into this position because Esther was not the first queen for King Xerxes. There was a queen before her, a a woman named Vashti, who made the king rather upset. And things did not go well for that last queen. It didn't end well for her. I think Esther knows this. Esther knows just how fragile her royal position is. How delicate she has to tiptoe around through that. Because it wouldn't be the first time that the king would say, you know what, fine, gone with you, get me the new one. Find someone new. She knows that. So she sends word back to Mordecai. You realize It's been like a whole month since the king has called me in, and you know what happens if I go in there uninvited? The law is that person dies. The only exception is if he extends this gold scepter he has that the person would have to touch then, which would give them forgiveness and allow them to be in the presence of the king. She knows that. Mordecai knows that. But Mordecai says, go anyway. So in the back-and-forth response, Mordecai responds and says, but you need to do this. Now, biblical scholars are a little bit conflicted about this because Mordecai's response in some ways almost sounds like a threat. Do not think that you alone will escape the king's wrath, right? A threat in the sense of maybe some speculation there. Yeah, if you try to hide this one out, I know who you are. I'll make sure they figure out who you are. You know, is is Mordecai trying to back Esther into a corner? All right, there's a few biblical scholars who go that way, but by and large, most among the biblical scholars say, no, 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 he's not threatening Esther. He's reminding Esther, reminding Esther of her true identity, right? Where she truly comes from. Yeah, maybe you live in this palace now and and everything about you looks Persian and royal. But remember who you really are. That you are one of the Jews, one of God's chosen people. Remember that. Mordecai's reminding Esther of that. In fact, if you were to back up, I I picked this up in chapter 4, but if you go back to where Esther first enters the story, it happens in chapter 2, right? So in in chapter 1 is the whole story of Queen Vashti, the queen before. Then in chapter 2 is where you first meet Esther. And when you first meet Esther in chapter 2, she's not Esther. 
That's not her name. It's not her real name. Right? Her, her real name, her Hebrew name is Hadassah. So when we are first introduced to Esther in chapter 2, it's by her Hebrew name, Hadassah, which in Persian is also known as Esther. So this is really in some ways, even though we call this Esther and name her Esther, in the book of the Bible is called Esther, this is really the story of Hadassah, a Jewish orphan girl who became a Persian queen. Mordecai reminds her of that, of your heritage, of your roots, of where it is that you come from, that you are one that's not just Persian. You're not just the queen, but you are in two worlds, that you have another side to you, an identity that we need right now. So, Esther responds. She responds in that moment. Now, we, we stopped reading at verse 14 in chapter 4, but, but if you were to keep on going from there, the way that the story of Esther goes is that Esther makes a plan, a plan where she will go to the king, and, and she invites the king to a banquet that she's going to prepare just for him. And one guest is invited along with them, Haman, right? And they, they go through this a couple of different times of having these banquets, where the king says, and, and what is it that you want? So, so he extends the gold scepter, the king does. Her life is spared. And they have these banquets, and the king says, so you wanted this dinner party, you called this for, what is it that you want? Whatever it is you want, I will grant it to you. Right? And Esther uses these series of banquets together then to, to bring before the king the plight that her people are in. Right, that she will reveal to the king who she truly is. And she will reveal to the king how evil this plot that Haman has devised and pretty much tricked the king into signing really is to annihilate all of her people. So that's the plan she does from there. And, and it all flips right where we ended reading, right at verse 14. Because if you were to back up and read everything up to chapter 4, verse 14, Esther is sort of, well, she's sort of the passive recipient of everything that's happening. It's not like she made herself be the queen. It's not like she went after the king and tried to suit him, right? She was just chosen out of that. That all of these things that have happened to Esther have sort of been done to her to get into this place. That Mordecai is the one giving instructions behind the scene for her to do. And even as we read in, this, in chapter 4, Mordecai is the one who's still giving the instructions. Esther, here's what we need you to do. Here's what you have to do. But after that last question that Mordecai sends back, who knows but that you have been brought to your royal position for such a time as this. After that question, everything flips. No longer is Esther the passive recipient of everything going on around her. But now the story changes to where Esther is the one taking action. Before chapter 4, verse 14, Esther is the one receiving all the instructions. After chapter 4, verse 14, Esther is the one giving all the instructions. 
right? She's putting her plan into motion. Something changes. Something flips there. Esther has this moment of faith. A moment of faith where she takes action. Action in a way that we didn't see prior in the story. Action in a way that charts the future for where her and her people are going. She's caught in two worlds, but things turn around for her in the way she does that. So how does that work in these two worlds? Well, let me point to a couple of things, all right? One is something that I'm going to refer to as elusive echo. Uh, It's one of those theological terms that happens in the Bible. Elusive echo is this, that when you have a passage of Scripture, a story in Scripture which gives this really subtle hint or nod to another part of Scripture, that's an elusive echo. And it takes place here in the story of Esther. It's remarkable that in this book of the Bible, in the story of Esther, God himself never seems to show up. At least not in the way the story's written, right? There's no part in Esther where it says, and then God said. Or there's no part in the book of Esther where it says, and then God did. It's all behind the scenes. It's all elusive, right? It's in the background. It's happening. It's there. But the story itself does not call attention to it and bring it out front and highlight it. It's elusive. God's activity in this story is elusive in the background. So here's an elusive echo to another part of Scripture that takes place here in this story. And this comes from Joel. All right, so here's a few verses that come from Joel chapter 2. The prophet Joel, speaking to the people of Israel, says this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. So those are the words of the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2. There is an elusive echo in there that echoes into this story. And those verses that I read from Esther chapter 4, when Mordecai hears of this plot to kill all of the Jews, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he goes out into the street and he's mourning and weeping and wailing. And then it says in the passage we read that in all of the provinces, all of the people do this. In, in verse 3, In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Fasting, weeping, wailing. In the Hebrew language, that phrase for those three things is the exact same wording that the prophet Joel uses in his call for God's people to be repentant. Fasting, weeping, mourning. Mordecai's instruction ends with this question, this this who knows kind of a moment. The prophet Joel 
ends his call for repentance with that same question of a who knows kind of a moment. You see, for for those Jewish people who knew their Old Testament scriptures well, and and they would have heard these things recited and been familiar familiar with it, when when they would read this story of Esther and they would come across these sections that would talk about this, what we see here in chapter 4, it would trigger in their mind, I've heard this before. I've seen this somewhere before. Even though in the story of Esther, God himself never seems to show up There's something that does show up in the background. And they would say that would trigger that to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is what the prophet Joel said. When God, through the prophet Joel, called his people to repentance, it looked like this. Exactly like this. So there is this echo that takes place in the story of Esther. And it's an echo then that, in some ways, instructs Mordecai and Esther to do exactly what it is that the prophet Joel is calling Israel to do. And you see it extend then to where all of the people in all of the provinces do this, respond this way. If you were to keep reading past Esther 4, Esther gives that same instruction. Here's what I want you and your house to do. I want you all to fast before I go in to see the king. I want you all to do what the prophet Joel told us to do so that I can then go in and see the king. Here's how that works. For Esther's steps of faith, for what Esther is going to do here, that her step of faith is instructed by the word of God. Right? They're rooted in the word of God. That steps of faith are rooted in God's word. That's instructive for us. It's instructive for us to pick that piece up because as we think about the world that we live in and sometimes wonder, what are those steps of faith for me? Right? Where, where am I supposed to take a step in faith? And what does that expression of faith look like in my life? It's instructive for us to remember that when Esther faced that, that it was rooted in, in the word of God, that we go there first. So if we're considering what does faith look like in our lives and what do those steps of faith look like in our life, the first thing we should do is to say, how are those steps of faith rooted in God's word? In this particular example, it's rooted in God's word in a way where the appropriate step of faith, the first step of faith was one of repentance, right? That's what happens in this story. The step of faith that they needed to do was to follow what God told them to do through the prophet Joel and make that step something that shows their repentance to God. That's one example, right? They could think of others as well, of how our steps of faith are steps that can be rooted in God's word, That God, through his word, instructs us for how our faith is supposed to live. You see examples over and over again in the Gospels of the way that Jesus taught his disciples how to live, that these then show us the way our steps of faith are rooted in God's word. That when Jesus instructs his disciples 
a new command I give you, love one another. That's instructive, right? Instructive to say, well, what should my step of faith look like? Well, it seems pretty obvious that whatever my step of faith looks like, it ought to embrace loving one another because that's what Jesus instructed us to do, and it's rooted in God's word. So we see that example here from Esther, right? A step of faith that is rooted in the word of God. Now, there's something else. There's something unique about this story, fascinating about this story of Esther, that her step of faith stays caught in two worlds. She's still living in two identities. Note that, right? Because here's, here's how it doesn't go, right? Here's, here's how the story doesn't play out. That Mordecai says to her, you know, you're really a Jewish person and you need to remember that you're a Jewish person. So, Esther, how about you just throw away that crown, stop being the queen, dress like a Hebrew person, go tell everybody you're, you know what, you need to just wear that Hebrew identity and that's it. Because I'm reminding you that's who you really are. You can only be the one. But that's not how it goes. Esther stays in two worlds, caught in two identities at once, right? That her entire plan that goes forward from that point is a plan where she actually leverages her position and her identity as the queen of Persia to make this whole thing happen to save God's people. She uses her Persian world to do God's will to save the Jewish people in her world. She leverages both of those things together. Or in other words, she's wearing one green sock and one blue sock. She keeps them both. She's living in both of those worlds at once. That's instructive, I think, for us as well. Instructive for us in faith because sometimes, here's how this works, okay? Sometimes when we think of what it means to live a life of faith, that we compartmentalize that and pack that into a box of, but that's my church world, right? That's my church world and that's the place where faith exists right there in that. But let's be honest. We live in a world that after this service is done, we we go out and We go to school, we go to work, we have relationships, we have jobs to do, right? We have friendships that we come and gather with. We live in a world where we find our expressions of who we are, our identity, taking shape in other ways too. So how does our faith, our life of faith, make its way into that world? Esther gives us an example where those things were bridged together, right? That she takes a step of faith that is, first of all, rooted in the word of God. But then her actions spill over from that into that other world that she lives in. She doesn't just leave it there but she brings it forth into the life that she has because Mordecai gives the question, the question, right? Who knows but that you've been put into this place, you've been made the queen of Persia for this time. 
that this other identity that you're wearing is something that has been put there by God for you now here in this moment. That's instructive for us too. Instructive for us because it tells us that, you know what, our life of faith is not just an expression that happens here inside church. Right? It's not just something for church world, if I can put it that way. That who you are as a Christian, who you are as a follower of God, is not just here for one hour on Sunday morning. You don't leave that behind when you leave this place. In fact, it's not only confined to just maybe church stuff either, right? Yeah, I'm a small group or a Bible study or I find those, I'm in a class and it goes there too. Or, or those volunteer opportunities. Yep, I mean, there's an expression of my Christian identity when I volunteer for a food pantry or life skills or any of those other ministries. It doesn't stop there. It's not just church world stuff. That's not the only place your identity as a person of faith shows up. But there's opportunity for our identity as a person of faith to show up in those other parts of our world too. Right? It shows up in the life that you go and you live Monday through Saturday. Faith shows up in how you treat other students at school how you interact with peers, how you go about going to classes and learning. Faith shows up in how you go to work and do your job, how you take your job and and do what the boss gives you or respond to that, or if you're on the other side of that, how you treat your employees and those who you're in charge of. Faith shows up there in how you do that. Faith shows up in those interactions we have when you have your appointments, go to the doctor's office, those things that you do, those connections you make. Faith shows up in how you treat that person at the checkout line at the grocery store, how you treat the server at the restaurant who waits on your table. Faith shows up in the everyday world that we live in. Now, okay, Okay, maybe, maybe for you and I, then, it doesn't show up in a way where we save an entire nation of people the way Esther did. Right? Maybe it's not that grand. But you see what happened there through Esther. That Esther did what she did as a step of faith with the position she was given in the world that she lived in in a way that reclaimed a bit of that world for God. Reclaimed her people for God. Do not underestimate the way that our, yeah, little, small steps of faith like that can reclaim a bit of our world for God. That we reclaim even just a little bit of what is broken and fallen in this world when we take those steps that are faithfully obedient to God in the world that we live in. Because the question that Mordecai gives for Esther is a question for us too. Now Mordecai says of Esther, who knows that you're put in your royal position for a time like this. But, but that's a question that comes to each of our own circumstances. Who knows but that God has placed you where you are in life for a time like this. 
that your faith can take expression in that moment, in that context. Rooted in the Word of God, but finding expression in the world in which we live. It's the example we see in Esther. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we, we find it easy to put our life of faith into a box where it shows up at church or it shows up in a group, but then it seems to get lost when we leave this place. Remind us again through Esther how it is that you have called us and put us in this world who we are and where we are, that you've planted that seed of faith in us and that we are rooted in that by your word so that we can find those expressions so that even just a little bit of the world we live in can be reclaimed for you through you working in us. That is our prayer. Do that in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.